0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. So, what happened at yesterday's meeting between Mayor Fred Eisenberger and the city's LGBTQ advisory board? Well, we'll find out. Doug Ford's government is filing for a Supreme Court challenge against the carbon tax. No surprise there, but what's going to happen? And are current leaders man-children? An op-ed in the Globe and Mail says so, but are they really any different from leaders of the past? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now.
1: Today. On the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML.
0: As we mentioned, uh, Hamilton and Fred Eisenberger met yesterday with the LGBTQ advisory committee members and other community members. I'm told uh, to try to set up what uh, they call a positive space and to try to develop some communication strategies for the community. Uh, Cameron Korsh was there. He is, of course, a former uh, candidate for Ward Two in the last municipal election, community member, and of course the the chair of the LGBTQ advisory committee for the uh, the city. Uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us his perspective on what happened. Cameron, first of all, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could join us again today.
2: Thanks for having me on,
0: Bill. What? Uh, give me a, your overview and uh, what you were expecting, and what you saw yesterday, and what you heard.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I was expecting that it would be kind of a chance for the LGBTQ advisory committee to sit down with the mayor and have a conversation. I really didn't know what his questions were going to be. He kind of reached out to us uh... we are an advisory committee so i assume for advice Um uh, when i got there it was really more of a planning meeting for the mayor what he's calling sort of a dialogue on hate which i think is a series of conversations in the community but i was surprised by that because there wasn't an agenda circulated in advance and uh... we didn't get a heads up about what the meeting was, was supposed to be about and we weren't invited to the first meeting um... i was invited personally to come but the committee wasn't invited mm-hmm. And you know so i had to kind of say to them hey uh, it's nice that you want to invite me personally, but you know I don't speak for the committee. They're the ones who decide if we're going to have these meetings or not. So you kind of have to contact them directly. So that's where it was in terms of yesterday and in terms of the kind of meeting it was and the tone.
0: Uh, I assume it was at City Hall, was it? It was at City Hall, yes. Okay. When you walked into that room, Cameron, were you surprised by who else was in the room?
2: I wasn't. Uh, I was a little surprised, yes, because I didn't know that it was going to be a meeting with other folks representing organizations um, who serve marginalized communities, Um, but I thought that the comments the folks had to make at the meeting uh, were good, and I was glad to see some people there.
0: Well, as you and I have talked about in the past, I mean, anytime we can have community dialogue and 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 deal with the the issue of hate, I think that's 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 a worthwhile exercise to be sure. But I'm getting the sense from from what you're saying here to this morning, though, Cameron, that you were probably under the impression that uh, that the meeting yesterday was going to be a little more focused on some of the issues that you've been and other members of the LGBTQ community have been raising over the last couple of months.
2: Yeah, I don't want to make it seem like there aren't other marginalized communities who are suffering from hate. Crimes and other kinds of hate incidents in the city. And it's not just our community, it's everybody who's been going through this for years and years and years. Um, and yeah, I did though think that the reason why we were meeting now was because of some of the violence that's happened recently. It wasn't a coincidence that this dialogue on hate is happening now, it's happening because of what happened at Pride, um, just like we had um, the reaction from the city when there was the burning of the Hindu Samaj temple. Uh, 2001, right? Um, this seems to also be a reaction to you know, some of the violence at Pride, and some other incidents that have happened recently. And I was a little surprised when that didn't seem to be on the agenda at all as part of the discussion. Again, not that it should be the entire focus. There are lots of different groups in there who all have um, long histories of systemic race, racism and, and marginalization that need to be unpacked and dealt with. Uh, we need to find a way to you know, combat hate in Hamilton. But, yeah, it was weird
0: to me. Well, yeah, that's uh, that broader discussion needs to happen. I mean, we just had another instance, of course, of, the, of white supremacist uh, well, vandalism, I guess, is one of the ways to describe it up uh, in Ancaster again yesterday. And uh, on and on it goes. But you feel, and I'm trying to put words in your mouth here, but I'm just engaging from from your discussion here with me this morning, you feel as if the issues that you raised right exactly from that, that pride event at Gage Park uh, still need to be addressed
2: yeah and maybe that wasn't the forum for that conversation, but that's that's where we're all still kind of shaking our heads, or I am anyways that there are some direct uh, feedback, direct action, direct responses needed to address what happened there, how the mayor responded to that, how police did or didn't respond to that. None of that was discussed or was on the table in fact, policing
0: um and
2: some of the issues that uh, have come out of this that sort of ask you know make us ask questions about policing. Uh, weren't also not on the agenda for discussion. So well, that's confusing to me because I think everybody knows that there are um, some questions and answers that need to, sort of question and answer, needs periods to happen with, you know, with police. And, you know, the mayor is the uh, chair of the Hamilton Police Services Board. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if these things are completely out of the realm of his understanding.
0: Did you not have an opportunity to bring any of that stuff up at the meeting?
2: Well, there was a period there where you know there was a section there to bring up other other things related to hate that didn't have to do with planning the mayor's hate summit, but uh, there wasn't really much time, and I did mention these things, but uh, there wasn't a response.
0: Uh, that's, I I find that unusual, uh, frankly. That uh, that uh, I I think you know a lot of people in this community have been lazy, focused on hate. I get that, and that's absolutely positively something that needs to happen. But uh, again, you've got to be awfully frustrated to understand that, uh, that the stuff that you've been talking about since June really uh, has yet to be addressed.
2: Yeah, it's it's a little strange, and it was even stranger to have this meeting facilitated um, by somebody from the community. And again, those things not be addressed. Uh, it was there was a response. The response just didn't happen. Didn't come from the mayor when I brought that up and said that that's something that something needs to be addressed and talked about. It was kind of just okay. Let's move on to the next point and. I think that we have to keep focusing on the broader concerns here. This isn't just about the two-spirit and LGBTQI plus community. Like, I really believe that. Um, but we have to acknowledge that there are things that have happened, and acknowledge our roles in those things. I mean, I've apologized several times for the things I think, you know, uh, on my own behalf that I could have done to contribute and make things better and safer at the event that happened. But... Other people need to do that, too, right? I uh, need to acknowledge what their role was in making the situation what it is.
0: Who was the chair of the meeting? Facilitator? Um,
2: oh, it was facilitated by the mayor's special advisor, Advisor Deirdre
0: Pike. Okay, all right. Uh, which... Okay, so and she's been involved in this from from day one, I guess ever since uh, they, he struck this committee and wanted to get this done so let, let me I want to get back to your issues in a second, but let's talk a little bit more about some of the the the, the, the direction that was discussed yesterday about uh, about trying to set up what he called safe places well, that was the mayor's word I guess um, your, your reaction to that uh, exactly where did you see this committee going? what are they suggesting?
2: My understanding is that this committee is coming together to help give feedback and support to the mayor about organizing the hate summit that he had planned and talked to council about having a few months back Mm -hmm. in October and, you know, walking in there, not realizing that there are some people there who are earnestly trying to help the mayor with that work. Right. And I get that. I think for me and I say all these things, you know, from myself personally, I think the, the issue is that we can't begin to, you know, come to an advisory role or start giving advice about summits and other kinds of things when um, or advising about safe places if we don't feel like the issues that we're raising are being addressed. And I find it all a little concerning since it seems to be that they want them presented in a certain format on their terms, right? So here's how you can present this information at these kinds of very specific uh, closed-door meetings on our terms you know, with these bizarre agendas that we're not going to send out in advance, and um, that's the that's forum we're going to accept these things. As if they all aren't watching what's happening publicly, they all aren't watching what's being said on the media, in the mainstream media and in social media, and they all don't know how everybody feels. It's a very strange performance, as far as I'm concerned, where they're disavowing or pretending that these, these other things aren't happening outside these these meetings they are very well aware what the issues are they're very well aware of what the concerns are and they're just flatly not addressing them
0: What do you want to see happen?
2: I'd like there to be some transparency so when they keep having these meetings not making it a struggle to find out um, where it's going to be, who's going to facilitate it, who's going to be at the meeting, what the agenda is that's all like really, really basic stuff I've run hundreds of meetings in my life and. There's, that's just the basic information you've got to give to people. So why aren't you able to do that? Um, so I think that's important. And secondly, I think that it's things have to be addressed directly. Can't keep skirting around the issue here. Um, there have been some serious questions raised about the participation of police in Pride events after Pride, their surveillance of people. The list is long. And yes, in one way, it's important to, to ask those questions to police directly, but the Folks who run the city, who are civic leaders, moral or otherwise, also have to answer those questions.
0: And that meeting, well, there's going to be a meeting, as you know, uh, later on this afternoon, I guess, uh, with police uh, members and uh, and other members of the community. Uh, Graham Crawford was on the program yesterday. He will be attending that meeting. Are you hopeful that some of the stuff that you've just talked about now is going to be addressed this afternoon?
2: I also feel like I don't know, because the agenda for that meeting is, is also strangely vague um, and not specific enough to understand what the direction is. Because, again, there's not like there's input from the community on the agenda here, right? It's sort of just, here's this agenda, here's this meeting, we invited some people, and you show up. As I think most people who facilitate things or run meetings know, that almost 100% of the time, you're going to get a better reaction from people, you're going to get a better answer from people, you're going to get better input, when you can provide them a bit of information in advance, that's specific, so they can have some time to think about it. It's not... Uh, really the job of the community to come and do this work right if the police services or the mayor or other kinds of folks are wanting to improve things it's great if the community can be there to give advice but at the end of the day they're the ones who have to figure this out figure out how to be allies figure out how to connect to the community and demonstrate that they're doing that right it's not the job of the community to that to that work for them or do the heavy lifting for them
0: uh, to, back to the meeting again. That's uh, going to be happening today. Um, if I got this story correct, your your advisory board declined to uh, to attend today. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and maybe you want to explain to our listeners exactly why. There's a rationale behind that.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand how the advisory committee system works, and I won't bore you with the details. <laughs> but it's very complicated, unfortunately, as a handbook and everything. Um, as part of every advisory committee, uh, some have mandates. Uh, all have mandates, and some have terms of reference. And under our mandate, it says that we're there to advise the city, uh, the City of Hamilton, and specifically City Council. So, the committee thought it really wasn't their mandate to go to that meeting, and that by going, it might send the wrong message. Right? Uh, others have requested to meet with us. We're going to show up to those meetings because that's within our mandate. But also, we're volunteers, and to be honest with you, how how many meetings can we go to in a month? I mean, our, our, our mandate and all advisory committees meet once a month, right? Mm-hmm. I'll say that in the last, since this committee was struck in this term of council, uh, our first meeting was May 15th, I think we met six or seven times, which is unprecedented, right? You know, usually you're meeting only three times in that period. So how much work can a committee like this do? How many meetings can a, can a committee like this go to? And the answer is not that many. And so we have to be reasonable about what our mandate says we can and can't do. But happy to have people come to our committee and delegate and make a presentation or ask a question or ask for input and advice and I think that's frankly the preference I mean it's nice to send the chair and the vice chair out to a meeting with some other folks and to have them participate but if you really want to get more of a perspective you come to the committee and you talk to everybody who's there because the public can also attend those meetings right sure. It gives a chance for everyone who wants to to come out and have a say uh, otherwise, it's happening again in these uh, closed-door, private meetings, and uh, really limits the uh, ability for people to, who are looking for questions to be answered, to get those questions
0: answered. How we, how do you make that happen? Uh, do you, as a committee, do you invite the uh, police services board? Do you invite the chief to a meeting, to to be a delegation, or do you wait for them to to ask to be invited?
2: Well, the way the city's um, procedural bylaws are all set up, it's a request system, right? So if I want to go talk to the planning committee. There's a form online, I fill it out. Yeah, yeah. And it gets it gets sent to the planning committee. Same thing, right? Police go online and they fill out a a, a delegation request. So you you us, would like then, to
0: see you would like to see a, a delegation request from Hamilton Police Services to attend your committee.
2: I'm not saying I'd like to see that. I mean that's up to them, right? I don't want to be yeah. putting, you know, words in their mouth and saying that I want you to come down and have a chat with us. That's not what I'm saying at all, for sure. What I'm saying is if you want to meet with the LGBTQ Advisory Committee, which it seems like they do since they invited us to this meeting, and you want to have a chat of some kind or you want to come down and ask some questions, by all means, we have regular monthly public meetings, and everyone's welcome to attend those.
0: And, well, we'll see. I guess uh, you're waiting for the phone to ring, I guess. It could be kind of nice. I understand you're not you're not suggesting they do this. You're just saying that would be a forum in which you think an awful lot of dialogue could take place, and maybe we could air some of these things that we've been talking about.
2: Yeah that's the point of this advisory sure, committee right it's, yeah. it's it's there to provide advice to the city of Hamilton when asked also to do other things to support and represent the community the mandates kind of long but also yeah we we have had guests there in the past in other terms when I wasn't on the committee i've heard and um, people have come by and asked questions and that's that's kind of the function of that committee right and i think that i think it's important for uh, these things to happen in public i know i've said that probably too much. But I think it's important for our conversation. No, it's, 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 like all, it's all about transparency.
0: I understand that. And, and I, uh, you're really singing to the choir because I think everybody is on the same page on that level that we need to have a public discussion about this. Uh, and, uh, well, I guess we wait to see next steps here. and said what's going to happen, the meeting yesterday uh, and then one this afternoon. And, uh, well, the police service is going to have to respond in some way, shape, or form as well. Cameron, we'll stay in touch on this. Uh, thank you so much for the time and uh, for your dedication to this uh, this cause, and hopefully we're going to get some resolution, or at least move toward one, anyway, sooner than later. Thanks so much again. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Cameron Croce, of course, uh, who attended the meeting yesterday at City Hall.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: The Ontario government is taking up the fight once again against uh, the carbon pricing program that the federal government has put in place. They have filed a Supreme Court challenge against this. That's... Uh, Rather surprising to an extent, because uh, just a couple of days ago, the Premier said he was going to maybe wait until after the election and see what was going to happen, but now they're charging ahead on this. Uh, joining us to talk about it, Richard Brennan, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill a long, long time. Uh, Badger, thanks for t- joining us. Were you surprised by the announcement today?
3: No. He's uh, he's painted himself into a corner. He he has no choice now, uh, because, I mean, this was a cornerstone of his whole uh, mandate and that was to, to fight the federal government on this carbon pricing scheme of the federal government and so he has to I mean, he just he really has no choice
0: Well, yeah, it's one of the things that he did consistently talk about during his campaign uh, you know, stop the carbon tax etc. But a lot of the stuff that the talking points uh, that he used through the campaign and I guess continues to use now have been debunked but they, yet the argument still goes on
3: don't let the fire in the away.
0: Yeah, I suppose. I mean, even yesterday, Minister Yurik, who, who announced that this was actually going to happen, the environment minister. Uh, you know, he called it the job killing carbon tax. First of all, the court ruled that it's not a tax; it's a surcharge, and that's you know, the federal government's got that to do that. And uh, there have been a number of uh, studies that have been done, independent studies that have been done, that said actually jobs have been created in Ontario since this place, what this thing went into effect.
3: Well, the, the problem with the, with the provincial government under Doug Ford, is that they really have not come out with a very comprehensive plan of their own. They've they've come out with a plan that said that they're going to charge polluters. Well, who are they? And, And it will be based on how much pollution they create. I mean, it really, it's not very solid in terms of how they're approaching it. And, and who will pay, and, and how much they'll so pay, and and so I think that's part of the problem is they've just not made a case for themselves. If they'd made, I think if they'd actually made an attempt to come up with a plan, that they, they wouldn't be in that this position they have now. But it's it's in my in my uh, you know uh, opinion anyway, it's 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 very slim. And that's what I think. That's haunting them as well is the fact that they're they're bullheaded and They're going to go ahead and do it anyway. But if they'd had a plan, we not we would not be here.
0: Well, yeah, because at least the you know the government because they said this is the federal government I'm talking about uh, said right from the get go that if you if you have an alternative plan like Ontario did, yep. you know Kathleen Wynne did not want the, the carbon pricing to use cap and trade, and and the, the government said sure that's okay too. That's fine. Uh, and and other uh, variations on that theme, but when Ford killed uh, the, the cap and trade program, obviously all we automatically, according to the federal legislation, fell under the guise of carbon pricing. So uh, it didn't have to be that way. If he would left the other program in place, there wouldn't be any carbon pricing on fuel or anything else. The
3: cap and trade. If he just left it, I mean, uh, Brown was going to uh, he was going to leave it. He he you know initially said it was crazy, and then. He decided it wasn't such a bad program. That's the previous uh, conservative leader. And he, he decided it wasn't such a bad program after all and was going to stick with it. There, there was there was no need, other than just politics, there was no need to get rid of that plan. It, it didn't. It, it worked. There's no question it worked. It, it actually made its money.
0: Well, if you remember the the... the platform that that, that uh, they put out at that the people's guarantee I forget what it was called now had some you know usual you know the names they usually give these things you know to try or to well catch everybody, yeah, yeah usual really. in that case but uh, but yeah he, he he embraced it and he said yeah we're going to continue to do that he had big plans for the money that was going to be generated from it too that was going to be doled off to the cities for different initiatives and things of this nature it was a it was a pretty good deal um and then there was money that was generated already by the previous provincial government. The win government and uh, they use that for a number of transit projects and things of this nature, uh, and it didn't have much of an impact on on the consumers, but yet we all benefited from that.
3: It was, it was so ideological. It just they said, "Well, it was a liberal plan, therefore it's bad, and we're just going to get rid of it without really having an alternative." And I still don't think they do. And that that's that's where that's what's landed us where we are. The, the government dug in its heels. And said we're going to head and appeal this, despite the fact the Court of Appeal Ontario said the federal government has every right to do this, and they they know in their heart of hearts that they're going to lose.
0: Yeah, but then they can go back to their core yeah. supporters and say, well, we gave it a good fight.
3: No, nope, that's right. They said, that, well, at least we tried. We tried to, you know, we we had to put we had to try and put Trudeau and his, his Liberal government in place. We didn't this time, but, you know, wait till next time. It, it's all part of, a, I guess, a bigger picture for them, I think. But it's certainly, without question, and in, in in their private moments, I'm sure many of the, the Tory MPPs would agree with you, or that it is a waste of money. $30 million that could be spent elsewhere, we're just throwing it away, because... I know it's a promise, but sometimes governments, you know, at least governments with, you know, have have any thought processes, you know, they would say, okay, you know, we made this promise, but, you know, we're not willing to go spend $30 million on it because we're pretty sure we're going to lose. Sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and say, yeah, I was wrong.
0: Well, we've seen that happen politically in the past, and yeah, maybe you pay a price for that with your, you know, with your hardcore supporters, but uh, they're going to be there no matter what. I mean, you know, they, just, they just went through that exercise with the sex ed curriculum, didn't they? Yeah. There were a lot of disappointed people that said, I thought you were going to rip it up, and it's basically the same one that was uh, put in place by the previous government with a couple of minor modifications to and it. And now the
3: teacher, you know, uh, not putting a limit on, the, on class sizes or increasing the limit on class sizes. It looks, looks like they may be backing off on that now.
0: Yeah, uh, f- from some of the comments from Mr. Lecce. But listen, yeah. we see this. I mean, Donald Trump did the same thing. You know, uh, obviously he made it one of his priorities to to kill Obamacare, the the health care plan that was in place uh, for a number of years before that. Doesn't have a replacement for it. He just, it just because it was a, a Democratic, you know, policy bingo. I'm going to rip it up. And and I get the sense, really, because I have yet to hear. And we've, we've talked to Mr. Yurk. We've talked to a number of people that are involved in this. Uh, they don't, as you said, they don't have an alternative if they had a viable plan. I mean, they've kicked around some ideas. Yeah. You know, oh, we're going to put a pot of money together, and, uh, and you know, if, if people reduce their emissions, then we'll maybe give them a reward. Well, they're going to get rewarded for doing what they should be doing anyway. That doesn't make any sense, and there would be no value to the consumers. And what they have tried to put out there as their quote-unquote plan has been, has been shunned by everybody, including conservative think tanks, and said, no, that's just not it.
3: Bill, maybe both you and I are wrong. Maybe the government's doing what they planned all along. I don't think so, but it, it is to create a crisis and and then say, well, you know, things things aren't quite the way we planned, and so we're going we're we're listening and we're gonna go we're gonna change, and we might have to take a step back here. Because think about it, really, the, the, how many times have they done it now? maybe this is all part of the grand scheme to show that they're a caring, listening government.
0: Yeah, I'm good with that. I mean, that's the kind of government I think most people wanted to see. Uh, And Some of the other stuff that they've had to walk back on over the last little while, and you and I have had some discussions about a few of those things now, uh, and, and maybe from a political standpoint they think, oh, it's embarrassing if we have to modify this or walk back on this, but Uh, Again, I go back to this whole idea that when he won the election a year and a half or so ago, you know, a, a lot of politicians fall into this this trap. They just think, you know what? Everybody loves me. You know, they they loved everything I was recommending. They loved everything that I promised, uh, and and I got to carry through on this because you know I got a lot of love. I mean, he was shocked, literally. I, I you watch the news coverage on this when those polls came up uh, about a month or so ago that said he was down around nineteen or twenty percent approval. You you, his, you could just see the look on his face. Like I, I, I thought everybody thought it was, this was all great stuff, so why not back down just a little bit and say maybe it's time for a course change.
3: Well, it comes from not being having any political experience other than a short time in in uh, city hall in Toronto. He, he, I just don't think he knew what to expect when when he took over and 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 thought that well, if I say something, you know, it'll just happen. Well, that's not the way it happens in government. I mean, we have still got a parliamentary process here to work with at this point at least, and uh, I, I just. I don't know. It's these ideas that the government comes up with, and it sounds very much like it was on the back back of an envelope. And that, in the end, could could be their downfall, is that they just plow ahead with various ideas, and then maybe back off or not back off. But it it looks like they don't know what they're doing, and I'm not saying they don't, maybe they do, but it looks like, and that's, perception is all that matters these days, if it looks like, you know, they're, they're, you know, and and they're just bouncing from pillar to post, well, you know, they, they'll have to worry about whether they, you know, get another mandate.
0: The concern I've got is, is because I'm not shilling for the carbon tax, I'm not shilling for cap-and-trade either. I mean, you know, something has to be done. We know that. And I think there's some general consensus. And I think even the province's lawyers admitted that in in the last go-around, the, the, the case they eventually lost, that, yeah, something needs to be done. And it's not as if the Ford government's saying, look, it, we don't want that carbon pricing stuff. We've got this plan that's just as good. But they don't have that. They're not offering it. But the, the, the lawsuit... I want to remind people, is not even whether or not carbon pricing is good or bad, it's whether or not the federal government has the, the jurisdiction to, um, to to pass a law like this. So, I mean, uh, I can't see how they can win that case at all. I mean, you know, the courts, I don't know, the lower courts already ruled on this, but that's what we elect governments to do. That's what the, the people of Ontario elected Doug Ford to do, is to pass laws. And you can't just arbitrarily say, well, you can't be, you know, we, you shouldn't be allowed to do this. Uh, it, it's it's it's. I think it's it. This thing is is a loss before they even get back into the courtroom.
3: Oh, I I would say I mean, and and their hard hearts, like I said earlier, they know it's going to lose. If we just change gears for just a second, it's the sticker on the gas pump pumps. I'm sure you've addressed that already, but, I mean, why, why put make force? You know, apparently, well, they backed off on that too. They said they're not going to fine people ten thousand dollars a day if they don't put those stickers on. It's all part of a bigger picture here where it looks like the government is just ploughing ahead with no idea where they're going and then having to backtrack
2: okay, again
3: with a sticker.
0: Yeah, and uh, the, the premier did clarify that. He says no, we're not going to find them $10,000 a day, but but he is going to find them on oh, a yeah. daily basis. Maybe you, he said maybe a few hundred dollars a day.
3: There the, the, won't be I here's my prediction. There won't be one fine. Well, because you're going to take on small business. Remember, this is small. These guys that operate these gas stations, they're small businessmen. Yep. And you want to take on small business? I uh, If you do that, I'll tell you, that is a mistake.
0: Well, one of the biggest uh, groups that's opposed to this whole idea of the stickers is the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. yes. You know this it's not some left-wing whack job group that some people like to characterize it the Ontario Chamber of Commerce the Civil Liberties Association says you can't impose this on small business you can't make them do that
3: and, and you know and, and the it's going to be challenged
0: Yeah it will be
3: Oh, oh there's no question it will be challenged
0: it's, it's, it's just we're looking for some consistency here and, and some, some good governing. Instead, I, I just feel as if it's the whole thing is he's spending $30 million for partisan political purposes. It's, it's a liberal government. He doesn't like liberals. We know that. I don't think he likes Justin Trudeau very much either. And, and he's using our taxpayers' money to fight his political battle, and I, I, I just think that's wrong.
3: Well, as I said, he hasn't got any choice. I mean, he has to do it. Do we like it? No. But in his mind... He has no choice.
0: I mean, we, we had the same discussion years ago when the, the, when the Harper government was in place. Maybe you don't like what they're doing, but they're, they're duly elected, and, you know, that's, that's what they're doing. They can pass laws. You don't challenge that in court. Uh, eventually, somebody did with some of the stuff, the tough-on-crime stuff and everything. But it, it's going to happen from time to time. And, uh, you know, you're, you're going to have a government that you may not like, but you still have to respect the fact that that's the government.
3: Well, that's right. You, it's you know, it's a it's a, a parliamentary dictatorship. That's what it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, they're going on with it, so there goes our money. It's just seeing that thirty million dollars out the door. Well, actually, I shouldn't say it's all going to the court case because a lot of it's going for those very expensive stickers on the gas pumps too.
2: There you so, go.
0: Yeah, that's it. So I guess that is money well spent. Uh, Badger, as always, thanks for this. Really okay, appreciate Bill, talking. It that's Richard Brennan, of course, who uh, covered Queens Park through I don't know how many regimes down there. Uh, many, many of them actually over the years. So. I don't think there's a whole lot going on down there that he hasn't seen numerous times before.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Op-ed in the uh, Globe and Mail today by uh, Mark Kingwell uh, that, uh, well, characterizes uh, the world leaders. We've been talking about the, the behavior of some of these people over the last little while. And uh, I think he captures it uh, with a, I think might be a tongue-in-cheek op-ed piece. It's called, We Thought We Elected Leaders, We Got manchildren Instead. Uh, just to give you a bit of a flavor for it right now, he says, uh, Indeed, it is hard these days to avoid the conclusion that the international order is dominated by chippy power holders, rat-faced agitators, with current recurrent cases of vapors. Old-school authoritarians, confident in their power and range, have been swept aside by a new crew of hypersensitive, defensive, passive-aggressive, apology-demanding nitwits who combine the sniveling weaknesses with braggadocio, the oldest jerk movie in the sign lot. Uh, yeah, I think you get a flavor for it there. Uh, is that really an accurate description? I mean, I, I can imagine two or three world leaders right in front of my face there as I'm reading that. Let's uh, bring Peter Grafe into the conversation, a political science professor, of course, at McMaster University. Morning, Peter. How are you doing today? Great, thanks. Uh, a pretty damning uh, characterization of, of, of the world leaders, uh, but might just be apt for a couple of them. What's your read on this?
1: Well, I mean, uh, I think it's maybe a bit romantic thinking. I mean, we could go back and read Mackenzie King's diaries when he wrote, <laughs> wrote about different leaders, and uh, you know, uh, I mean, I think there's always you know the, the sort of the personal aspects that come into it. I mean, it's a bit weird reading uh, Mark Kingwell as well, who seems to think it was great if we had these uh, real authoritarian leaders, a real strong man, rather than uh, you know this group, which he doesn't see uh, as such, but. Uh, I think probably would want, uh, in fact, a greater democratic uh, control over our leaders.
0: It's a different style, and and you're right. I mean, I don't necessarily like what the alternative is there. I I think might have maybe inspired him in this whole thing is the behavior of some of them. Not necessarily their governing style, but what they they do. Uh, uh, you know, we just had the story earlier this morning that uh, well, you heard the education minister just announced that they're going to try to phase out using cell phones in in classrooms. Maybe we should take them away from the world leaders. That wouldn't be a bad idea.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, you know, as as people change and as technologies change, the way we consume news about our leaders and politics changes. And so, I mean, I think some of this is uh, is that we try to over personalize politics. In fact, we already have, but now we have all these you know additional pieces of information and we consume the interaction of our leaders as we would uh... a reality tv series and so as much as we maybe don't like the sort of the sniveling we also uh... you know we we like the titillation of it ultimately of uh... of you know of the insults and people uh... you know throwing shade and and so forth and you know again i think it leads us to consume things then as these kind of personal personality conflicts and I think there always has been those aspects driving how leaders make decisions, but I think it also leads us to misunderstand a certain number of things. I mean, I don't think it's just, you know, a, a tiff over uh, comments made about each other's wives that are at play, say, uh, for Bolsonaro. It's also a longer-standing relationship of the Brazilian right and the indigenous people in the Amazon. And, uh uh... the question of the landless peasants and uh... you know making sure that they don't uh, cause political troubles uh... i mean there's a lot of i think deeper political uh... machinations involved in these calculations uh, but it's a lot easier to just kind of take it back and personalize it as some sort of tiff about someone consulting
0: someone else's wife I, I think probably the, the the catalyst here is the fact that, as you just mentioned it's social media i mean a, a lot of the stuff that the the caddy remarks that have gone back and forth here I, as usually I'm sure they happened in past generations of political leaders, but they usually said behind closed doors and nobody much heard about it because they didn't have the the vehicle to transport that information and and we know about that now. Uh, You know, as books have been written about that, about Mackenzie King and the diaries, and who was he talking to in the hallways late at night, Uh, or, you know, Nixon and some of his comments about uh, the Canadian leaders, or Pierre Trudeau and some of his comments about Nixon, on and on it goes. Today, if those comments were made by those leaders, they'd be doing it on Twitter.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, they they would be, and I think also, uh, I think it's an unfortunate way in which, uh, you know, we've always personalized politics, but... Uh, maybe we've lost a certain sense of faith that we actually have a capacity uh, to affect politics beyond choosing our leaders every four years. I mean, we seem comfortable with an idea of of leadership and of always searching for leadership, Uh, but, you know, that we elect the right person and they'll do the job, just like you change the coach when things aren't going well for a a professional sports team and hope things go better. Uh, You know, rather than saying, no, actually there's a lot that we can do as citizens uh, in terms of demanding better from our leaders, but we have to... Uh, you know, work at it and develop the institutions. So in other words, it's not, you know, just a matter of, of leadership and our leadership today isn't as good as the leadership in the past or they're more given to this cattiness and so on. Uh, you know, it's also to say, well, we haven't been working on our followership, right? Uh, we as followers constrain our leaders, uh, constrain them to follow certain norms and principles or to, uh, you know, listen to certain voices and concerns. But uh, if we don't actually work at it, then our leaders aren't constrained uh, and maybe we're unhappy with the decisions they make.
0: Well, and uh, as you mentioned, ultimately at the end of the day, we're the ones that put them there. So, uh, but there's a certain hypocrisy to that to, to him complaining about you know the social media aspect of this. And and I, I get some you know some validity to that. But how many how many followers does Donald Trump have? So I mean, we do find it as a society we we may be you know find it revolting on one side, but on the other hand, it's 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 like the you know the the car accident. You can't turn away. You have to watch it.
1: Uh, that's true. I mean, I think uh, we could look at the number of followers Trump has, and it probably would, you know, much dwarf even with changes in you know differences in the population, number of followers Trudeau has, and uh, you know that also has something to do with how they do their politics. I mean, Trump is uh, fairly unique in the extent to which it seems he, uh, you know, rules and emits uh, edicts in, in 140 to 280 uh, characters. Uh whereas uh, you know, in most other political systems the leaders are still constrained enough by institutions and processes that uh, it would be unthinkable uh that they would communicate their views and expect them to be put into place uh in that manner. So I mean I think there's something particularly about about Trump and his I mean a, a very uh you know particular kind of presidency, uh, you know, that brings
0: that to the fore compared to other places. <laughs> Well, and again maybe that that filter doesn't exist anymore because it's so immediate uh, you know they, you don't have a chance to you know that what they used to say when you got angry write a letter about it but don't mail it and then read it the next day and see if you still want to do that uh, if you put it out on Twitter it's gone it's there but the, in in the old days I guess Peter there would be filters there'd be staff members that would say well mr. president or mr. Prime Minister you probably shouldn't say that why don't you just think about this for a while and okay, In other words, cooler heads prevailed. Uh, There there may not be cooler heads here as soon as you just get the the phone out and start tweeting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think another thing is that there's maybe a greater distance uh, between, um, you know, the image and the real tangible action in how people are consuming politics. Because, I mean, it's one thing to tweet something. It's another to make the thousands of bureaucrats in a place as big as the United States change a law or regulation and it's enforcement and uh to negotiate that with the people, you know, that that's being enforced with. And so I mean there's a lot of performance at the level of statements, but how much of, of those really lead to things changing on the ground, uh, can be quite variable. I mean I think at one point we might have demanded more from our leaders in that if they you know made a pronouncement, we were skeptical until we actually saw the changes. Uh so I mean I think there's another aspect in which, you know, the performance aspect of politics has been greatly increased uh with the change in, in uh you know media technologies it's a lot of it is about controlling image and how people are seeing you know the leaders and their statements and the the follow up afterwards you know did anything get done and you know what did get done was that good or bad in terms of the outcomes that we were trying to get uh maybe uh, you know it's more distant to how we think and talk about politics
0: when did we get lazy about this peter and and, and as you say lower the bar lower the standards
1: uh well i mean maybe uh I'm you know thinking of some kind of golden age that never quite existed uh but I think uh at one time in many ways, we consumed politics more slowly uh with better resource media organizations that were able to do a bit of follow up in terms of what was happening and uh you know what was really uh, being put forward as citizens, we maybe also asked more for our governments that uh, you know when they announced things, well, we said, well that's fine, but I actually want to see you know where's the bacon <laughs> you, mm-hmm. know, you said it's coming, but I haven't seen it so. You know, there may have been, uh, in addition, you know, a certain number of organizations as well where people were more closely connected to politics through higher rates of belonging to parties or to civic society organizations that, you know, allowed them the capacity to stand back and say, well, here's here's the image, here's what it's being sold in the media. Um, but, you know, I've been speaking to these people, and they've told me to think twice, and, yeah, that makes sense, and maybe I should not just consume the image
0: but but ask some harder questions. There's another element to this, too, and I, you're right. I mean, the scrutiny is, is much greater than it used to be. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, we've read accounts of, of some of the past administrations back in the 1950s and 60s, I guess, and I guess all the way back to FDR in the States in the mid-40s. Uh, There were a lot of things that went on in politics that we just never heard about because it was kind of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We won't report that, but next time you have a tip, you know, remember, you owe me a favor. Uh, You know, but some of the dalliances that some presidents had and things of this nature was was never common knowledge. Nobody would think to even report on something like that. Today, it seems as if, uh, you know, everything everything and everybody is fair game.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly, I guess, uh, social standards change in terms of, you know, what is public and what is private, Uh, And, I mean, I think that would be one aspect, too, about why we didn't hear what, uh, you know, Mackenzie King thought of this or that leader or what, you know, other leaders thought of Mackenzie King was, Uh, I think, too, that there was uh, an elite that extended into the media which felt that some of these things were inappropriate in the sense that they removed the necessary grandeur, uh, you know, and importance of politics and belittled it. And so, you know, I mean, there's a variety of things going, going on at any given time in terms of, uh, you know, how the authority is granted or not granted to the actions of our politicians.
0: And there's a showbiz element to this now, too, isn't there? That probably didn't exist back in in past generations. Uh, You're always on stage. I mean, because of social media, uh, you're there omnipresent, and and obviously you've got to be there. You've got to represent, and if you're an elected official like this, you have to let people know that you're always going to be there.
1: Yeah, and people expect you to be always be there. Exactly. If, uh, if something bad happens and you're not in front of a microphone within an hour, somehow you've been negligent in your duties <laughs> in many of these cases. So, I mean, it is a it is a weird situation where, I mean, you're right, there is a kind of a degree of 24-7 scrutiny that didn't exist in the past. But in some ways, uh, it means we're focused on one crisis after the next and our capacity to remember and put things in a longer perspective. You know, it becomes harder to do. Uh, and, uh, and I speak for myself. You know, I forget what the crisis was even three months ago, or what were the the big topics because we're we're pulled from one to the next. Uh, you know, and I think you know that that aspect too of the modern condition uh, about everything happening so fast and on an ongoing basis that we lose a capacity to remember and to compare what's happening now to the past. Is it really as huge as we think it is? I mean, that, those sorts of forms of perspective that allow us to engage in some collective judgment. I think it's harder to, to, to draw on those because we are always fixed it, fixated on the next thing and there's so much
0: attention being given to it. And we demand that. I mean, if there's a, a, a world event or something that, goes, as you mentioned, a, a big news story, almost immediately, it's off to social media. What's so-and-so say about this? You know, what's the Prime Minister say about this? What's the Mayor say about this? And, and on and on and it goes. There's, there's a, a great deal of pressure to not just respond, but respond, as you mentioned, very, very quickly. Or people are going to say, well, he's being derelict in his duties.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I guess in that context, the question is, what could we do to improve a democratic uh, conversation? You know, what is needed for citizens to actually be able to do what they need to do as citizens, which is make choices and informed choices over the longer run. It's to make judgments about whether people in office have done their job well or not. And so, in in this you know very speedy moment, are there ways that we can you know find ways to have uh, slow things down, put things in perspective, uh, think about the longer tar- time frame? Uh, you know, where does this really stand in a historic perspective? Uh, is this really a tempest in the teacup compared to a much more important but less sexy question about, you know, how do we produce wealth or how do we uh, prevent the planet from burning and so on? Uh, you know, those, those, you know, what what the answer is, I don't know, but maybe that becomes a challenge if you want to pres- preserve a democratic system where we get a chance to make these decisions rather than the kind of the Kingwell view of that. Well, we just need better authoritarians, right? We, <laughs> We need to find the strong man who's going to make the right decisions, and sometimes strong men and women make uh, right decisions, but probably they do so because they're constrained by us as Democratic electorates who have expectations and will, in a sense, punish them if they act in a manner that's inconsistent with uh, our hopes for
0: our societies. Yeah, the other element to this, just to bring it back to the op-ed piece that was in there today, too, uh, it, it's I, you could probably accuse the author here of, of trying to paint everybody with the same brush. I mean, there are sh- certainly examples, uh, and Trump comes to mind, and and, and a few other ones that, that are rather bombastic and sometimes very irritating. We, we get that, but uh, you look at the, the way others have governed in the last little while or what they're continuing to do right now, and they seem to be at least trying to follow the pattern that you've just described. Uh, they may not always succeed, but uh, to, to suggest that they're all like like a Boris Johnson or a Donald Trump, I think is really unfair.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we are in a moment where, uh, given uncertainties about the, f- the fate of the world and the fate of the global economy, uh, there is an authoritarian impulse. People want to have a sense of order. Uh, there's also many people who haven't been, you know, been working hard but not getting ahead, and likewise, they say this is unfair. We need some sort of authoritarian leader to uh, reward people justly. Um, But yeah, that authoritarian leader can look like Trump or Johnson, although they don't seem to necessarily be bringing the the fairness people are looking. Uh, You know, another example, though, would be someone like Angela Merkel, who really was Mm -hmm. an authority, but in the context of kind of the German housewife uh, kind of metaphor, right? The person who's going to run the household properly and reward things, but on a somewhat different uh, basis than sort of the bombastic approach of, uh, of Trump and company and one that... To be more consultative and uh, more encompassing in terms of bringing the
0: whole family together and along. Can you are you confident that that we as a society are not going to let the, the 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 weird ones control the narrative? Then I mean, it seems that that it's happening all the time. But I like to think there's somebody with a little a little more steady hand that said that's trying to guide us now.
1: Well, if I'm confident, it's because I'm confident in my fellow citizens. Right? Yeah. Democracies are fragile things. Uh, we've come uh, through a period of about 75 years of, you know, a fair degree of democratic stability in the West, but that's not very long in the context of human societies. And so if we want to continue this experiment, then citizens have to protect the civic thing and talk about it and figure out where things have gone wrong. At the moment, I think citizens are being led a lot by their leaders. Uh, I think they have to discover a way of making sure that their leaders respond to them. I mean, the basis of democracy has to be the rule of the people, not, you know, the rule uh, of the few who are,
0: uh, manipulating the people. Amen to that. Peter, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. You're welcome. Take care. Peter Gray, of course, from McMaster University.
1: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
0: The Bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.